0: The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Ecclesia, would you pray with me? Creator God, we're so grateful to be in this space to worship you together, to call on your name, God, and recenter our lives around your will for us and your priorities, your vision for how we are to live and who you've called us into being. And we pray, God, that uh, you would continue to open our eyes to the reality that you have set before us, to trust that you have defined reality and so much of our time and our energy, God, go to creating our own reality, leading us away from you. And so we would just ask, Lord, that you continue to be with us as we open up your words, open our hearts and our minds to your spirit, that you would speak to us, God, in ways that we could see, know, and understand, knowing that we we're all in different places with you. And some of us come to you this morning, Lord, very close, and some very far, some wondering if you exist, and some knowing that you are with us in all things. And so, God, we'd ask that you uh, remind us of who you are. And God, that you would give us a sense of who we are in relation to you, and toward that end, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching, that everything in this place be from you and because of you and drawing us towards you for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's uh, great to be on the west side. I don't get over here as often as I'd like. And so you probably don't know, it's one of the things I actually talk about a lot, is that I am kind of an American history nerd, but I get it pretty honestly. When I, was, uh, when I was in elementary school, when I was a young kid, before my dad became a high school principal and superintendent, he was a band director and an American history teacher. And he always was just constantly sort of downloading American history onto us, and I think maybe we were just his, like, lesson prep maybe. Like me and my brother, he would just teach us American history all the time. And so over the course of my lifetime, I just kind of fell in love with American history and read a lot of books about American history. And very recently though, I have moved from just general American history to becoming much more interested in military history and military battles and how all of that works out. And so um, I was talking with a friend not too long ago who also is very much into American history, and he was telling me about this bomb, uh, and it is called the Daisy Cutter. It is the America's largest non-nuclear bomb. I've got a picture of it for you. And so it's been around a long time, and it's not nuclear, but it's the biggest one we've got that's not nuclear, and we used it a lot, apparently, in Vietnam— And for some of you who were alive, maybe remember the Vietnam era, one of the reasons it was very useful in Vietnam was because when you dropped it, it just made it an incredibly huge crater and cleared out a lot of space and a lot of land. And when you are fighting a jungle war, that's the kind of thing that you need. So not only did it kill a lot of people, unfortunately, but it's one of the things that you have to do in war, it also cleared a lot of path and a lot of ground. But it's been quite a while from Vietnam until today. But America still uses the daisy cutter, it's also called the Big Blue 82. But when we used it more recently in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, um, those aren't jungles, those are deserts. And so we didn't need to clear out any place and the enemy was much more dispersed than they were in Vietnam. But what the American military found useful about the daisy cutter is that it made an enormous sound. The, th- the purpose that it serves now in war is not death and destruction, it's just loud. It makes an incredible impact. So the thought was that you could drop it over here but it was so loud and created such a quake that people way over here would hear it and see it and feel it and be intimidated. The daisy cutter right now exists almost exclusively, not for impact, but for impression. It's an impressive weapon, the kind that when you know goes off, you can feel and you go, wow, those people who ever dropped that they must have a lot of power. It exists almost solely for the impression that it makes. And one of the things that I find interesting about our moment in time, this moment in history that we all live in, and maybe it's not new to us, but I think we express it in some new ways, is that there are a great many of us who spent a lot of our time and energy and resources just trying to be impressive. That that given choice between making an impact and making an impression, a lot of us just choose to make an impression. So if if you're new to Ecclesia, you need to know that for the last a uh, month or so at both this campus and the downtown campus, we have been walking through the Exodus story. And even if you haven't been around a church, you've not read a Bible before, you may know some of the Exodus stories. Lots of movies have been made about it. So God sees that his people, the Israelites, are suffering uh, in slavery in Egypt. And so he calls this man Moses. Remember the story of the burning bush? He says, go to Egypt and tell the Pharaoh to set my people free. And so Moses does that, but Pharaoh doesn't let them go. And so you get this series of 10 plagues. You get frogs and boils and all of this stuff. The really cool things that kids like um, at VBS because they make cool crafts. And finally, they're set free. And those were all those stories that we know so well. The crossing of the sea, the Ten Commandments, all of those stories are in part of the Exodus. But imagine what it might be like to be an Israelite during the Exodus. You've spent your entire life a slave. That's all you've ever known. That's all your mom and your dad ever knew. That's all your grandparents ever knew. That's all your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents, and on and on and on. And, and maybe even for you, you got to a point where you just believed that that was your existence. That's why God put you on the earth, to be a slave. Because all of us, on some level, inherit a story that our parents tell us, and we have to kind of work through or around that over time to figure out who we really are. That's called individuation. That's why parents and teenagers are like this a lot of times, But that's the only story that you've known. But now God set you free, and you're out here in the desert, and you've got a million things to learn. Like, like, one, you know how to make bricks, but you don't know how to do much of anything else. So you've got to build a community, and you've got to build an economy, you've got to build some structure. And so last week, Titus talked with you about the Ten Commandments. But you're also just kind of wandering around and you know what the past looks like and you've heard Moses talk about the future. But the truth of it is that you're just kind of stuck between the past and a promise and you're having to make a path for yourself. And so one of the questions that might arise for you in this time of life is what does it look like now that we're not what we were? What does it look like to be a success? To be a successful person, to have a successful family, to have a successful community? And one of the things that you already know about life is that question never goes away. You don't have to be an Israelite stuck in the desert to have serious questions about what it means to be a success. How much time have you spent wondering about what your life would look like if it were successful? We worry about success in our careers. Like, am I, am I earning enough? Am I making enough money? Can I provide for my family? Am I going to get the next promotion? Do I need to look for another job? Is this the right thing to do with my life? Or, or maybe I'm just starting out and I'm picking a major and picking a college and I've got to figure out what success looks like and what I'm going to measure success by. And some of us um, have kids at home and we're very concerned about not just what success looks like for us but what success looks like for our kids. And I don't know if it's ever been more pressure to worry about your kid's success? Because when I was a kid, my parents had two main concerns. Feed us and make sure we don't act like a fool in public. That's all they were worried about. And like my daughter this last week, my oldest daughter's 14, she starts high school next year, and we spent more time doing applications for her high school and for my younger daughter's middle school than I spent doing applications to go to college and graduate school. They had to take more tests to get into high school. And then parents are running around their kids to this and that, and they just really want them to be good at something. Like, really, if you're here and you're in middle school, you're in high school, your parents just want you to be good at anything. (laughs) Just be good at it. And you only have to be good. Just, just work a little. <laughs> success in our relationships? Like some of us know what it's like to be dating right now. And we wonder, what does success look like there? What should I be looking for? Shouldn't I be looking for? Is he right? Is she right? Is this right? How are we going to manage all this? Success in our marriages? What is that all about? How how do I avoid the things that we don't want and cultivate the things that we do want? Like Every step of the way, we are worried about success and we get lots of pictures of what success looks like. like. Have you ever just logged on to social media? And when you log off, you feel worse than when you got on? Did you know that every study, every research study ever done uh, says that social media makes us feel worse about ourselves than we otherwise would have? And why does it make us feel worse? Because of the daisy cutter. All of us want to be impressive. We want those people to think that we're good looking, or those people to think that we're smart, or, or, or that, that we earn a lot, or we're wealthy, what, whatever it is. Everybody wants to be impressive. We're all swatting at the same gnat all the time. I mean, we're not the first people to be in this situation. Because the temptation that you face, the temptation that I face to be impressive, like Moses dealt with that same temptation as he led the Israelites through the wilderness. So as you peel open the cover of your Bible to Numbers 20, we find Moses out in the desert with the people. And they're at this place called Kadesh, And this is the second time that they've been there, and uh, we'll talk about the first time in a couple of weeks. Either Chris or I will be here to talk to you about that. And they are about to cross over into the promised land, but they've got a problem. They are about to cross over, but they are out of water, and the people start grumbling. And they start complaining because that's what Israelites do. And this is what Numbers 20 tells us. The Israelites say, it would have been much better if we had simply died along with the rest of our relatives. All through the Exodus, the Israelites think whatever they're facing, it would have been better if they died. I don't know if they really believe that or they're just a touch dramatic. <laughs> It'd been better simply died among, with the rest of our relatives, Korah, Abraham, and Dathan, right in front of the Eternal One. Why in the world would you drag us, the Eternal's own group, out of Egypt into the wilderness where we'll soon die, and our livestock too. And there aren't any grains, figs, grapes, or pomegranates, and there isn't even any water. These people are complaining, and that's bad enough, but if you've read uh, before this in Numbers, you will know that you should be feeling a lot of sympathy for Moses and his brother Aaron right here. Because not only are these people complaining... They're complaining at a time when Moses and Aaron had just buried their sister Miriam. Like she had just died. And now these people want to complain to them. I mean you've you've been there in your life. Where, where you're just at a season, you're in a season where it feels like nothing's going right for you, and then you've got these people who come along and just want to make it worse. And, and they give you all of the you-gotta's or you ought to's. You ought to be doing this, you ought to be doing that, you ought to work. So one of the things that we discover really quickly is that not only are we concerned about our own success, there are people in our environment, in our circle— who they're concerned about us being impressive too. But not for us, but for them. Because Moses, if you, were, if you were a real leader, if you knew what was going, if you were really a man of God, then uh, we wouldn't be in this situation. And the story goes on. The Eternal One says to Moses, you and, you and Aaron grab the staff Before the covenant chest, gather the whole group so that all the people can see and hear you. And speak to the rock. Tell it to release its water for them to use. In this way, you will get water from the rock for everyone to drink, including all the animals. Water from a rock. How, How easy is that? You speak to the rock and water will come out For all the people. Don't you wish your problems were that easy to solve? Like, you just speak to this rock and your kids will behave themselves. Especially in church when everyone's watching. Like, you you speak to this rock and, and your retirement will be fully funded. You speak to this rock and your wife, your husband, they will finally do that thing that you have been trying to get them to do forever. Just speak to the rock. Don't you want your problems to be that simple? To solve, This is a layup. So here's what happens. So Moses did that. He took the staff just as God told him to do. Then he and his brother gathered all the people in front of the rock. Moses says to the Israelites, listen up, you rebellious lot. Should we get water for you from this rock? So before Moses does anything, he's going to give a little speech. Like, he's going to say, should we get this for you, you, you rebellious lot? Which I'm guessing is not a chapter in how to win friends and influence people. Number says, as he spoke, Moses raised his hand and hit the rock once, twice, and immediately the water came gushing out. All drank their fill, people and animals alike. God tells Moses, "Hey, speak to this rock." And that's what Moses does. He speaks to the rock. But that's not the only thing he does. Because Moses is like you and like me. He's tempted in the same ways that we are tempted. Moses doesn't want to just get water from the rock. He wants to look impressive doing it. And so he gets out there and he gives this grand speech. Do you want us to give you water? Watch me use my staff once, twice. Because I'm tired of all of you people complaining. And I want you to know how badly you need me. Because I'm the prophet. I'm the leader. And every time I turn around, no matter what's going on with me, you people want something. You grumble about something. And so I'm going to show you, you can't live without me. Moses wants to be impressive. but let's not be too hard on him. Because isn't that the time that you want to be impressive too? Don't you wanna be impressive when you feel like you're being taken for granted? When people don't appreciate all the things that you do? Parents, don't you wanna remind your kids of everything that you've done? to provide them this life that they take for granted. And so you just start giving them their resume, your resume, right? Like, I didn't blah, 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 I didn't work 40, I don't work 60 hours a week, so you cannot not put your dishes up. When you feel insecure, isn't that the time where you're tempted to say something or post something to remind everyone how strong and beautiful and great you are, how smart you are? Have you ever heard parents of little kids talk about when little Susie, when little Johnny learned to read? Apparently kids are learning to read like at two weeks old now. When you want to be impressive? How many have ever been to a high school reunion? My friend John's 47 years old, and he had a date last week with a girl he went to high school with. And he called me on his way to pick her up, and I said, Did you check her out on Facebook first? There are all sorts of ways, big and small that we're always tuning the dials of our lives to make people think that we're impressive. And maybe we have. Maybe we've done all the things that we've said that we've done and we've accomplished what we said we've accomplished. But don't you sometimes feel like just having done it isn't good enough? You want everyone to know that you've done it? Moses wants the people to look at him and go, you know what, Moses, we are so grateful to have you. You are such a great leader. We were wrong for all of this grumbling. We've been wrong all the time because apparently you can just hit a rock and water come gushing out. I don't know why you didn't do that before, but you did it now. (laughs) It's in every endeavor, no matter what career you're in or what station of life you're in, In every guild, in every profession, in every hobby, there's a pecking order. There's who's up and who's down, who's in, who's out. Who's good, who's bad. And the word we have for up rather than down, and in rather than out, and good rather than bad, the word we have for that is success. And down deep... All of us agree with Dallas Willard when he says that success in America is defined as being young, attractive, and wealthy. Brene Brown says that we all struggle with the shame-based fear of being ordinary. But look what Moses' actions get him. In Numbers 20, it goes on, but the Eternal One scolded Moses and Aaron for their actions. God says, because you didn't trust me and treat me as holy before the Israelites, you will not lead this group into the land I have given them. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like a pretty steep price for Moses to pay. After having spent all of his adult life leading these people around in the wilderness and trying to follow God that he doesn't get to go into the promised land. And why? Because Moses was more concerned with being impressive than he was concerned with being faithful. Water came out of the rock, Moses got to look good in front of the people. Everyone got to drink. But water coming out of the rock does not mean that Moses was faithful. And listen, by whatever standard you're judging, whatever you've picked, it is entirely possible For you to be successful and not be faithful. And there are entire religions and there are pockets in the Christian religion that will tell you that if you've got all of the things that you think are successful, if you've got the big house and the nice car and whatever it is that you've hung your hat on to say that's success— there are entire pockets of religion that will say that if you have all of those things, and there's nothing inherently bad about any of them, but if you have all those things, those are signs that you have been faithful. But one of the things that we, know, we learned from Moses is that you can get water from the rock and not be faithful at all. The water coming out of the rock may not have anything to do with our faithfulness. And I think if you're one of us, because the truth, the truth of the matter is, the women and men in this room almost universally have been blessed materially. Some of us more than we ever could have imagined. And that, that should never make us feel badly. It should always make us feel responsible. It should always make us feel grateful. But we need to be very discerning and knowledgeable of the idea that just because water came out of the rock doesn't mean we have been faithful. And that means we haven't been successful. Because the worst thing that can happen for your life is not to be a failure. The worst thing that can happen for your life is to be successful at things that don't matter. So Henry Nouwen was one of my favorite writers. He was a Catholic priest, and he taught at Harvard and was world-renowned, traveled the world writing and speaking. And he gave all of that up, left all of it to go work with uh, the mentally disabled and handicapped at this community called La Art. And this is what he says about our obsession with success. He says, we want people to pay attention to us, to recognize us, to give us our due. This is how our identity's worth and significance are grounded. We want to be relevant, spectacular, or powerful. So we go through life fishing for such things, a grasping that keeps knocking us off center, spiritually speaking. Here's what now I want to say. Our temptation will always be to be relevant, spectacular, and powerful. The same temptations that Moses had. But to find our center means being faithful. When Jesus comes along, His his first public act is the most passive act. He goes to his cousin John and is baptized. And, And then the gospel story takes off. And three years later, you find Jesus on a cross followed by 11 men, a few women, a guy who betrayed him, and his mom. And by every standard, That we would apply. Jesus has no political power. He hasn't written any books. His following has all abandoned him. By every standard that we would apply, Jesus is a failure. You would look at that guy and you would say, why would anyone follow him? Everything that he's meant and done and taught has come to nothing. And I think that's the lesson in Numbers 20, is that you and I have to be extraordinarily discerning about what it means, what it really means when water's coming out of the rock. Because it may not mean what we think it means. It may mean that God is good. But we're still unfaithful. Not long ago, a guy named Dieter Zander uh, was one of the best known pastors in the country. Uh, He was at one of the largest churches. He was a worship leader and a teaching pastor there. And had a six-figure income and invitations to go all over the world, but then he had a stroke. And six weeks later, when he woke up from his stroke, uh, he could no longer use his right hand. And his speech, was, uh, his speech was off, so he couldn't speak anymore. And so after having served one of the largest churches in the country and being known in all sorts of circles, he found himself working uh, overnight at Trader Joe's. And, and he wrote this piece called The Kingdom of Cardboard and Spoils. And I just want you to hear from Dieter himself what success looks like.
1: If I am the king of all I survey, then I am king of cardboard and spoils. My kingdom is a noisy, windowless room in the back of a Trader Joe's grocery store. Here are the haphazard stacks of empty cardboard boxes. Here is the giant box baler. Here are the shopping carts marked spoils, their wire frames brimming with still good fruit, meat, and flowers. In Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, he defines kingdom as a realm that is uniquely our own, where our choice determines what happens. My kingdom used to be a stage, a microphone, a piano, and an audience of thousands. My kingdom was a performance, King Dieter. Then came the stroke. Now, five days a week, I arrive at Trader Joe's in the early dark, hours before the sun cracks the horizon. I push my mop up and down aisles, sweep my broom into corners to collect the debris from the day before. There is no audience in this kingdom. But that's okay, because I'm not performing. There is no stage deater here. No superman seeking to wow the masses with feats of spiritual strength. It's just me. Just Dieter. The guy who mops the floor, who bales the empty cardboard boxes for recycling, who prepares the spoils for the Marin food bank. There's something beautiful about this simple, menial work, though. Take the food marked as spoils, for example. It's all still good. The fruit is good. The meat is good. The flowers are good, but they're not perfect. Anything that has an expiration date of today cannot be put out in the store for sale. And if a pear so much as rolls off the smooth green pyramid of fellow pears, it gets put in the spoils pile. It's not perfect anymore. So the Trader Joe's employees fill shiny carts with all this perfectly edible imperfection and wheel the load back to my kingdom. From there, it will go to feed the hungry, who won't care at all that their apple is lopsided, that their hamburger is in the waning stage of freshness. They don't care how it looks. They just want to eat. To me, this, here in this back room, this is what's real. Not the bright aisles of suburban shoppers making their menu selections from stacks of perfection. I understand the spoils. I can relate, because I too am spoils, over and over and over again. I used to be packaged as perfect. Back in the heyday of my church career, I was a shiny, unblemished apple. At least that's the image I polished up and displayed to the public. But now, stripped of my talent, my stage, and my six-figure salary, I relish the imperfection. I revel in the spoils. As I break down these empty squares of cardboard, abandoned boxes that once held and protected goods more valuable than themselves, I survey my kingdom and I am pleased. I come home after work and I think, it's good today. It's not a sermon, it's not a performance, it's not perfection, but the cardboard is recycled The spoils are feeding the hungry. And today, I'm thinking, life is good. It's very good.
0: I tell my wife frequently that I'm probably a great disappointment to meet in person. And that's because my, my life, just particularly over the last five years, has had particular contours where um, I, I say this, I, I think without any hubris, that there's a lot of people um, who know me that I don't know. And when I'm at a conference or I'm away somewhere, from time to time, people will say, hey, can we buy you lunch? Can we meet, can I, because I want to ask you some questions about my career or about ministry or about writing or wh- whatever it is. And then when I meet them, I tell them first thing, when we first shake hands, there's nothing I can tell you. I don't know anything. And I know it's a great disappointment. And the, the reason that I don't is because I really don't know what success looks like. Not not real godly, God's reality, success, not for me, not for my family, and particularly not them. I don't know what to tell you to do next. But I know this, that that some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus, and they asked him why he did the things that he did the way that he does them. And this is what he said. He says, the truth is that the son does nothing on his own. All these actions are led by the father. The son watches the father closely and then mimics the work of the father. I love how the NIV puts it when Jesus says that I can only do what I see my father doing. And what I want to invite you into is to reframe your view of success as not the next goal, the next achievement, the next mountain, the next whatever it is that you're out to conquer, but to look around your world, your home, your workplace, your school, and say, where is God working? And then mimic what your father is doing. To only do what you see God doing. To dedicate yourself to what God is doing. Not what you want, not what you wish, not what you hope. But this is what I see God doing. And I'm going to do what I see my Father doing. And my guess is that when we follow that path, we will find something that God will call success. Let me pray for you. Creator God, give us a vision of what it means to be your people, to be successful in the ways that you want us to be successful. And God, give us the strength to push against our culture that would tell us that success is to be young, attractive, and wealthy. But let us step with you to faithfulness, God, that we would not try to be people who just left an impression, but be people who made an impact. And we trust, God, that you can do this and you alone. So give us the strength and courage to walk forward with you into all that you have to offer. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.